I just feel like for the whole of that time, we, we were on an elevator and so you're just putting one foot in front of the other and quite numb to everything else around you and just surviving. G'day, welcome to Life on the Land, a Grazy Her podcast telling the stories of women living across rural and remote Australia. I'm Em Herbert, your host for today. I know most of you will feel like you know today's guest intimately because you hear her calm, soothing voice on a lot of your favourite podcasts. Yes, we finally have my gorgeous co-host, Sky Manson, on the other side of the microphone, and I'm so thrilled about it. Sky is first and foremost a storyteller. She's one of the most happily curious women I've had the pleasure of meeting, finding a genuine delight in the stories and conversations of others. She has this really gentle, luxurious way of unearthing how other people have lived and how they felt whilst walking their journey. It felt like a bit of a privilege to ask her to do the same for us. And while I've worked alongside Sky for nearly two years, I had no idea of the enormity of the challenges she's faced, including an acutely sick daughter whose 18-month-long treatment changed Sky's life to this day. Sky currently lives at Blakeney Creek near Gunning on a fine wool property with her farmer husband Damien and their three children, Ollie eight, Percy about to turn seven and Florence five, with her mum Wendy living just down the hill, living the dream. The journalist has had a big career working in radio for the ABC across the country and has made the very organic leap to the world of podcasting, producing five that's right, five, podcasts for her company, the Manson Podcasting Network, Life in the Land being one of them. I was so delighted to interview Sky, to know more about the voice behind the mic, and I feel like I have so many many insights into the journalist and producer she is, as well as her life in the land, which has helped direct so much of her passion and work. I, yes, I'm one of four children. I'm the eldest of four. I have a younger brother and two younger sisters and we grew up at a little locality called Bookham, uh, which is on the Hume Highway in New South Wales between um, Sydney and, and Melbourne and it's quite close to Yass. Lots of people know Bookham actually because it's been bypassed now but when the highway used to go through there, there always used to be a copper sitting sitting there and so it was true to its name that you would get booked there. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we grew up on a sheep and cattle farm, mostly fine wool and we had a great childhood. I have just only happy memories. We were always... Um, we weren't always working, but in my mind, we were always working. Um, after school and um, during the holidays and on the weekends, we were sort of, there was no sitting around inside. It was expected from dad that we would be up at the shearing shed or mustering or helping out in some kind of way. So we were very outdoorsy Um and if we weren't working, then we were, I was certainly outside. I I think mum and dad used to think that I was a bit of a, they used to worry that I was a bit of a loner because I'd just take myself off into the paddocks or there's a creek nearby down by the creek and I had all these little imaginary play spots. One was called the boat, I think, um, and then there was another bush tucker rock which was inspired by bush tucker man we didn't get to watch much tv but we were able to watch bush tucker man (laughs) and then also we spent a lot of time in the garden mum was in the garden a lot she's a great gardener and it's it's a real the garden at bookham is um was when we were growing up a a central part to to our childhood and there's many photos of us working in the garden and as really youngsters, you know, sitting in old wooden uh, washing baskets. Um, we've backed up with pillows while mum was beavering away in the garden. It does sound like it was the foundations for everything that you love now. I know you love gardens and, and the natural world. Do you think that that has were really formative to, I guess, your interests now? Mm. Yeah, it's interesting 
I'm working on a podcast at the moment about gardens and it's a real rediscovery and quite, I mean, gardens have always been in my life. There's been a common thread, but uh, yeah, definitely. There's there's certainly an influence there and it's not actually about the practice of gardening because I'm not very good at it, but it's just about creating a space and being in a space and sharing that space with other people and then on the work side of things like before I up until the point where I got married I think um, dad would most certainly have been the most influential person in my life he is um, (laughs) he's a really hard taskmaster and he's quite strict but he's also very soft underneath which I think is quite common for farmers I, I know lots of farmers like that too and um, yeah, he's instilled a huge work ethic and a great set of values and also an appreciation for being outside. I mean, I think I say like being outside because that was the mantra. I was like, get outside. It, it, <laughs> I don't know if other people refer to it like that, but it's um, it, it's been a huge thing for us. You actually wrote in one of your newsletters, you send out a beautiful newsletter every Sunday and um, about your love of mowing. So (laughs) like, I guess you don't have to be a gardener per se to enjoy being outside in the garden. And where does this love of mowing come from? I know, right? Well, I think, yeah, that's right. It's, um, it's been weaved into my life on so many Sundays we would just be outside and someone would be mowing and that sound and that smell and then I mean I cannot tell you it's odd how much I think about how much I love mowing I was (laughs) I was only thinking about it the other day about it's one of those jobs that is the reason why I love it especially on push mower if you know, I could talk about it forever. Sorry, everyone, um, is because you are exercising. You cannot speak to anyone on the phone. You cannot listen to a podcast. No children can interrupt you. And our children seem to just love the hive of activity. And then the other wonderful thing is, is this just this immediate sense of achievement. Mm. So you can do it, mow the lawn, sit down afterwards and enjoy it. Yeah, and also see where you've been. I totally agree with that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it was during these years that you actually, that the seed for journalism was planted. Can you tell me about how that came about? Yes. So um, we went to a tiny, my brothers and sisters and I went to a, a tiny um, school in another little locality nearby called Bounding. Um, it was a school of about probably 60 students at its largest. And um, the principal there his daughter his stepdaughter used to work for new weekly magazine so she came into the school and gave a little talk about what she did and I immediately loved that I can't even remember why but I think I I really chased that because I had a vision of what the workplace might be like like busy and humming and I also really loved reading as a child and I really as I got older really loved magazines I loved um, Cosmo and I loved Dolly and I feel like such a a teenager saying that but um, they really opened my eyes to another world and I just loved reading Um, and so, and I also was quite good friends with the principal's daughter and I used to go to their house and copies of New Weekly would arrive and they'd, you know, run to open it and look to see where Alex's articles were. And they were really proud of that. And I think that resonated with me too, that I could do something that wasn't farming. I think I always knew that I would never end up on our family farm, but that I could contribute, I hoped to be able to sort of contribute in another way. And so through journalism, that was how I carved the path for that. It's pretty remarkable to know what it is you want to do from such a young age and to have that passion for the craft. Did it eventuate the way that you thought it was? Was was the workplace how you envisioned as a young girl? Well, um, it is remarkable that I sort of followed that inkling to want to do journal- journalism from such a young age. But when I went to university, I went to uni um, in Bathurst. There was a great comms course there. And 
I studied journalism, but I quickly found that I didn't like the print side of things. And I really loved broadcast journalism. And I really loved interviewing someone face-to-face and having their story as audio and then being able to cut it up and and be a little bit creative with it, I suppose. That's what appealed to me and to be able to make a story of it. So, yeah, I, I, I actually ended up going down that path, which was not what I expected. And to answer your question about were the workplaces what I expected, I've never worked in a magazine workplace. So, I, <laughs> um, I mean, I'd always love to. I, yeah, I, I, I would love to experience it, but I think that ship has sailed and I'm well entrenched in what I do now. There is some, the, the immediacy of, of audio platforming is so fabulous. And also the, uh, coming from a, a background of TV, I was always so jealous of um, the radio gals because, and guys, because they were able to get stories from further afield and still enrich it with sounds. Whereas, you know, if we didn't have the pictures, we couldn't tell the story for TV. And so I was always really jealous of the way that they could, um, you know, interview someone over the phone, but they could still interweave the the sounds or the backgrounds or just little um, snapshots of that person's life within the story. Is that something you enjoy from from a creative perspective is that that interweaving of of different sounds and telling that story in that way Mm, yeah that is so true isn't it that you can go anywhere and record something and bring it to life and it's really that's what I find now with podcasting I mean um the onset of COVID and the way that we work at Grazy Her and the way that I work within my network is really um actually you know we would record everything over zoom but when I was working for the ABC the golden standard was to get something face to face so we could travel anywhere we could travel anywhere with just a tiny little recording device um which would be even tinier these days and and bring a story to life or find a gem you know someone that just spoke beautifully but we didn't need the extra layer of images and in terms of sound I love sound. My ears after having worked in, you know, the industry for almost um, two decades are really attuned to gorgeous sounds. All of the sounds that I record for my podcast and for Grazy Hair as well, I captured here at home and I go out, I've just, you know, I go out on the front veranda and the birds are going bonkers and I'm like, oh, you can just hear the different layers. So I'll flick my phone on. I just record it on my phone or I'll go for a walk and hear some other different, it's usually birds, birds. And so I'll just put my, my phone down on a rock and press record and keep walking. And then, you know, there's beautiful sounds of water and sheep and cattle in the landscape and trucks coming and going. And uh, I love that so much. I love being able to weave that into storytelling. I don't often get the opportunity to do it now, um, because it, it's quite um, like you have to spend a lot of time on it so it can for clients become expensive but it's really where my passion lies. Mm, such a rich tapestry which can be kind mm. of evoked just through your ears. Mm. So you were drawn to the ABC after uni but how did your first interview go? <sighs> <laughs> um, okay so <laughs> when I was at university the course was really practical and they said to us up front, um, you're not going to get a job in journalism unless you're really serious about this. So if you're not, leave the room now. So I had to, I did lots of work experience with uh, ABC Rural during my time at university and I would go and do work placements um, always for free in those days. And I really found the ABC Rural was where I wanted to be. This was like harking back to my desire to do something that the family would, you know, that that they would appreciate. I wanted to work for the Country Hour because, of course, for us, this will resonate with so many people. The Country Hour was always on at lunchtime and there were no podcasts back in there. So it was always 12 to 1 and we had to be quiet during the weather and during the markets. And it was, it's just central really to my childhood. So I applied for a cadetship and I, and I got an interview because I did have, I already had a good showreel of stories that I had done, but the interview, oh my God, I just had no idea. Like I was very 
I think I am quite naive in some senses. I, I just, I just failed it so badly. I think it went for like five minutes. <laughs> like they, I must have, I must have just given five word answers and thought that that was okay. And oh, it, um, anyway, but I didn't really realize at the time that there was anything wrong with that. So I did, I got, I got, I got my chance at getting a cadetship, but I failed the interview dismally. And then my, my boss, Lee Radford, who was the head of the ABC for my whole time there, he called me and said, oh, you know, look, Sky, you didn't go very well in the interview, but we're really trying to find a way to, to keep you within the organisation or to, to secure you within the organisation. So would you be interested in uh, working for us for three months in Esperance? I don't know if you know where Esperance is, but it's like the other side of Australia. It's really isolated. Um, but my auntie lived in Western Australia, so of course, and I and I am I love a bit of adventure. So there's no doubt about it. I was going for sure, and I said yes straight away. And everybody around me was like, "Oh my gosh, what are you doing? And where are you going?" They couldn't believe it. It just blows my mind, I guess, because you and I have such a beautiful working relationship and you come across as pretty bloody eloquent and articulate that you could bomb in, a, in an interview. But you do describe yourself as, uh, is it an introverted extrovert or an extroverted introvert? <laughs> I think I'm introverted extrovert. Like I, I love my own time. D- Damo and I, my husband, we talk about this often and we kind of argue about who's the bigger introvert. I'm like, no, I need my time more than you do. And he's like, no, I need my time. And the best thing about us is that we that can just be completely happy and comfortable in our own silence. Um, but I do love socialising and meeting new people. I really love meeting new people. I'm one for a great deep conversation. I'm not much of a small talk kind of girl. Yeah, but I do find social situations exhausting and I need time to kind of decompress afterwards and I don't know if that's just age and and, you know the busy lifestyles that we lead but um yeah there's certainly I and you know harking back to what I've explained about my childhood too um it does make it does make sense I'd be happy to be living in remote Australia with no one around and just doing our own thing I think Mm, mm. I like the term um, energy hygiene. You know, you're just protecting your energy. I've never heard that. Mm. Yeah, that's great. It is. It's really good. So moving to Esperance, I mean, that's such a huge move for a 20-year-old or 21-year-old. What was life like in WA? You went for three months. How long did you stay? So we, we went for three months. I went for three months, took a suitcase and nothing else. And Damo came over. And so the ABC had entrusted me with a role that was working in a bureau. Um, and that means by yourself. There was nobody else in that office. I, I had never been on air before. And considering how, like, I bombed out in the interview, I don't know what they were thinking. But, um, you know, I got a bit of training and it was okay. There were long, long, long days, really up early so, you know, you'd arrive at work at five o'clock and um, I can remember being on the phone to farm, local farmers, like begging them for to record an interview with me at 6pm that night. Oh. And they'd say, you know, farmers are, are notoriously reluctant to go on the radio and they'd say, look, I, you know, if you really get stuck, I'll help you out. I won't sort of see you stuck. And I'm like, I'm stuck now. Can you help me? <laughs> Anyway, so it was a real baptism of fire, but I loved it. And, yeah, we ended up staying for seven years. It was in Esperance and then we moved to Kalgoorlie and just more and more job opportunities came up. And it was really nice that the organisation felt that they wanted to keep hold of me. So I really worked um, quite hard. When I lived in Kalgoorlie, I was sleeping on the floor in a couch. We had no car. I would walk to work in the dark at six o'clock in the morning um just crazy things that you do when you're young Damo came over at the end of the year and 
um, he started working in the mines because, of course, it was that time when mining was really starting to boom in Western Australia. And, yeah, we lived in a swag for about a year and didn't have a car. And it was just 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 crazy but the stuff that you do when you're young yeah absolutely so you started um, jumping from a couple of stations and and eventually ended up working your way towards Perth and towards country hour what was that like (laughs) yeah it was so great I yeah so we had three three I had three years reporting as a rural reporter and went from Esperance to Kalgoorlie to Bunbury I stayed in Bunbury for yeah almost three years and that was wonderful. And then the opportunity came up to present the country hour in Perth, which was just so wonderful for, for me. It was a, you know, something that I quickly thought I wanted to do. And then I, I got there. So it was wonderful. And I stayed there for three years and that really took me all over Western Australia. I mean, the ABC has gave gave me um and demo to the biggest insight into that state and afforded us the opportunity to meet people everywhere and to travel everywhere and to really like we camped a lot of the time and really love western australia for what it's most well known for i think Mm. yeah uh, regional and rural media it, it just you end up covering such a swathe of topics you are there for everything and also traveling huge k's to get to those stories what were some of the most colorful or, or challenging moments of of those years do you remember any stories that kind of come to mind that you think of i mean there were so many stories there were um there was a huge drought in western australia up in the gasoline area which was really uh, and, and in the wheat belt Western Australia is really driven on, in an agricultural sense, on um, grain farming, which I didn't know anything about before going to there. Um, And so if there's a drought, they really suffer badly and they can't, you know, in, in New South Wales, we have prolonged periods of drought, but they, because they invest so much money in grain farming, like they've all got headers, they all have brand new equipment it's big business over there um 10 years of drought is unsustainable so one one year really hits them hard and yeah that those were those were tricky times and I remember going to um you know like 10 hours from Perth into the east of um the Gascoigne area to these farms Mount Clare Station is one that stands out and Bijimaya and all these oh I love it all these <laughs> all these huge stations that everybody knows everything everything about each other in Western Australia too like that's the that's the difference because there are not as many people um mm. farmers know of farmers throughout the whole state whereas in uh, on the east coast, we're all so heavily populated that those communities sort of just exist within themselves rather than across the whole industry. Um, sorry, I digress. So yeah, we would be travelling out to huge stations, and they'd be doing the the windmill run, and stock mm. would be dying everywhere. Um, and they travel around with a shotgun on the dash of the ute and it was just really confronting stuff and for me just to see men so sad um and affected was huge and also challenging to bring to life in Mm. a sensitive way but taught me a lot um it was a huge there were bushfires as well which we you know really prided ourselves on our ability to report um straight away so to take ourselves we weren't in the country house not a news organization we're not the news team but we knew how to quickly um mobilize and make the program mobile and also it was a time of um, deregulation in the dairy industry and um the livelihood of farmers to do with it it's all they're all negative stories aren't they but they really are mm-hmm. um i think that was yeah part of working for a news organization is that the negative story, um, unfortunately, is one that is covered a lot. And the more positive colour stories are things that you spend more time on. They're not more immediate. Um, and that's what I really loved when I actually left the ABC, that mm. we could, I could just do all happy, positive stories and mm. focus on businesses. And, yeah, so sorry, I don't know if I answered that question very well, but there was a whole range of stories um, and yeah, I think we, we also, uh, a hallmark of 
hopefully my time with the country hour was that we did lots of outside broadcasts which took us to the communities which we loved doing um I loved doing we you know we'd line up half the program in the studio and then we would hit the road and then we'd meet people at the pub the night before and we'd line up the rest of the program there and that is just the best kind of reporting it's so yeah. good and immediate and if you if you hit with that person or if they've got a story to tell then you can quickly grab them in and if you don't that's fine you just leave <clears> it yeah and really like it, it generated enthusiasm within the community and so we were thatched to that community you know from that point forward yeah, it's real boots on the ground reporting, which I think is maybe being lost. I think those were the golden years of radio, um, that ability to get out and about and, and to really travel. Uh, it just doesn't seem to have the funding now, which I think is such a crying shame. Mm. The um, What brought you back to the East Coast after seven years? We just, the just distance and family. We, yeah, it was just too sad. I hated leaving. I felt like it was always such an effort to get away, to go um, back to New South Wales. And we were there. Anyone who does this will be able to relate. We would run around trying to see everybody and mm. it was really fabulous and exhausting and just so sad when we when we left. And then, yeah, anyway, the time just came. And we, so we moved back to, we moved back to the east with, um, yeah, I quit the country hour and um, took a little bit of time off and then went, and then kind of eked my way back into the ABC, funnily enough, um, which I didn't actually intend on doing. But uh, I we ended up in Orange and we were there for five, five years, um, yeah, after moving back. And in that time you had your, your three babies and you eventually managed to get yourself on the land how was that journey because I I just take my hat off to everybody who um who manages to buy a block it's so difficult to get into farming um and that was obviously Damo's dream and, and you were really keen to get back on the land so tell me about that journey finding your place out at Grenville mm. so Damo and I have been been together since I was 19 and he was 20 and yeah, we both come from a farming background and it's both, it's been our dream. He, you know, he worked in the mines, but he actually worked in the grain sector um, for a long time as well. We it was always, there's just no doubt about it. We just really wanted, we knew that that was where we were heading. And so when our three children came along, we were married and we, you know, we bought a house, we started doing the growing up things. And then Ollie, our oldest, who's eight now, um, came along and then Percy, who's just about to turn seven and then, and then Florence, who's five. So all very, actually, technically speaking, we had three under three just by a matter of days. So they're really close together. And yeah, I, I, we were living in Orange at that time, but constantly Damo was constantly looking for farms. We really hoped to move back towards the Yass area, but then this farm came up at Grenfell now we don't didn't know anybody at Grenfell. Usually, you know someone in in a town um, or someone that knows someone, but we didn't didn't know anyone. It was really not on our radar. And anyway, we went to this farm and we did it. You know, we drove around and it just felt right. And I, until you've felt that kind of feeling, you I, I was skeptical about that. You know, just feeling right, but it really did. I was like, oh, this is nice. And there was. You know, we, it was a shoebox of a house for a mum. It, it was not that enticing at all, but there was some kind of beauty about it. It is um, the backdrop of the, what they call the Red Cliff Ranges. And, yeah, we just sort of fell in love with it. And it was uh, slightly attainable. We felt like there was a couple there who just wanted to get out. They wanted to sell it to us, walk in, walk out. So that meant that there was stock included as well, which was a real kicker for us because if we bought a farm, that's great, but we would never be able to afford any stock to make any money from the farm. So it's just this cyclical um, quandary that people who are trying to get into farming would come up against all the time. Mm. Damo... Um, took a redundancy from his was offered a redundancy from his work so it all kind of came together and with the help of family we were able to 
we were able to convince the bank. God knows how we did that, but we, I think they saw value in what we were purchasing. So we did it and we settled on um, Grenfell on the day that Florence was born. Um, <laughs> so we went there, you know, also I was on maternity leave and um, it was so exciting. Yeah. Oh my God, it just blows my mind. It's such a huge, huge thing to do. Um, but it was kind of, it was the beginning of, of a pretty tricky couple of years. So that was 2016. Things got a little bit tricky in 2017. Can you tell me a little bit about that that period and that time? Yeah, so, um, yeah, you're right. It was things just became real, really real for us. Um so we moved to Grenfell and people thought we were crazy, but we we're just on this massive high. Um, it was, we were living out our dream and we had three children and um, I wasn't, didn't need to work. So we we're just really loving it. Um, 2016 was a wet year. And then 2017 for us was the beginning of the drought. Um, and so that we were just, seriously on a high so we rode through that in an in an okay sense we didn't have huge we had huge huge debt but not huge amount of stock to feed and um you know 10 years worth of breedings to to have to consider getting rid of or whatever so that was one thing and then um yeah at the end of 2017 we Florence our youngest daughter became quite ill without us really realizing she I took her to the doctor one day in Grenfell and um and Grenfell also is notorious for not being able to secure a doctor so yeah it was lucky that there was someone there and he looked at her she had a um sort of a swelling near her right ear and a bruising in her ear like she'd been punched in the ear or something like that um which was unusual but you know I was it flow was our third child and um i think you kind of develop well i certainly did this kind of complacency about you when we were in orange, i was forever at the doctor day in day out week in week out and it would just be another virus you're worried about your child it's just another virus we can't do anything can't do anything and so um you sort of become complacent about about that and just think, oh, you know, it, it'll sort itself out. Just give it a little bit of time. Anyway, we, they thought it was something called mastoiditis, which is an infection of the ear area. And if any, if a child has that, then they need to have IV, IV antibiotics in hospital for 10 days. So the doctor was worried about that. I took Flo to emergency um, in Orange that night. She was admitted. I think it was determined that it was a middle ear infection and so we were discharged and then it was this this swelling was still there a week later and fortuitously um Florence had had some other issues which we were having a checkup with a pediatric doctor in um orange the next week anyway it was Melbourne Cup day um went to see the doctor and he had a look at it and then he said look I just I've got some, fortuitously again, there was a visiting paediatric radiographer from Westmead there doing a clinic the next day. Um, He said, I'm just going to try and get her in. So he got her in for a CT scan and an MRI. And so we went home and he said, look, I think, you know, it might be mastoiditis. And if, if it is that, then you'll have to be in hospital, but it might be something more sinister like a tumour. And just not for one second did I think that that it would be that. I, I was like, she's she's fine. She's a happy, active girl. Uh, she's not struggling in any way. I just didn't didn't think it. Anyway, the next day she went in um, and had all her testing, which of course I'm not allowed into. I have to wait outside, and it went over by about two or three hours. And I should have known, but I didn't. I I just. I was just so naive. I, I just sort of thought, I remember when the doctors finally came out, he was with a registrar and the registrar had hot pink socks on. And um, I was like, oh, they're nice socks. And they just trying to lighten the mood or talk with them or something. And they were really focused. 
and that and they didn't really respond to that and I should have known I wasn't even nervous it's funny how your being works yeah anyway the news was delivered that um Florence had a tumor and then it just started this um cascade of action there's no time to process that I was taken into the pediatric ward I was offered like travel assistance it was organized that we would be going to Sydney the next day just have people coming in and all sorts of paperwork and in the meantime like Damo was at Grimful where we had no phone service and I couldn't get hold of him and yeah, you know, he wasn't even he wasn't even worried about it either. And then I, you know, and then the whole thing about my sister luckily was working in Orange, so she came up and there's lots of tears and shock and just on this roller coaster kind of pushing you forward. And um, you know, I thought, oh, it's like a tumor. You know, I've heard of friends who have had brain tumors and they've got rid of them. So feeling really quite positive about it that you know you don't you don't know anyway we asked the question is this cancer and the doctor sort of categorically said yes it is we can tell because there is blood flow we can see that there's blood flow to this tumor which indicates that it's sort of active and and cancerous um so that was how we went forward and we went to sydney for weeks of testing um which was besieged by setback after setback with Florence and just awful things that you don't want to have to put child through and no one was prepared for and but you just keep going forward anyway we got the diagnosis and it wasn't cancerous which was just we just couldn't believe it um it it was wonderful but (laughs) you know you can't you can't really say that it was so she was diagnosed with a really rare um benign vascular tumor I'm going to say what it is because if there's anyone out there yeah it's just it's it's so rare it's one in 100,000 children have it and it's called Kaposiform hemangioendothelioma and basically this tumor traps platelets and so it means it's life-threatening so it needs treatment that um dissipates the tumor um Anyway, and so we started, you know, while we were so thankful that we didn't have to deal with the horrors of cancer for our little girl, um, we did have to go through chemotherapy for a couple of months. And so for us looked like me traveling with Flo to, from Grenfell to Sydney every Wednesday, I think it was leaving at, you know, five o'clock in the morning, bundling flow up in the car, arriving at 11 a.m., waiting for the doctor, chemotherapy administered while flow was, you know, we just thatched ourselves together. She'd just sit on my lap facing me, cuddling and falling asleep and, um, and, and she'd have her chemo and then we'd see the doctor and then we'd drive home um, or make her as far as we could. My sister lived in the Highlands, so... We'd just get as far as we could that day and then and that was life yeah and then we'd recover from that and poor Florence would yeah she she just um you know she was 10 months old so she couldn't talk and the only way that you, you could just observe her and she would I'd just see her turning gray in the car on the way home each time and just fall asleep and and that was what our weeks were made up of um yeah for the following three months Mm, it's uh, sky it's just incomprehensible and every parent's worst nightmare that some sort of acute illness like that um as a as a mum and and as a journalist I mean what being in an an oncology ward must just be quite an extraordinary harrowing experience especially when you're there with your baby you know, what was that like for you and, and what were the things that were going through your mind when you were there? Yeah, I just feel like for the whole of that time we, we were on an elevator and so you're just putting one foot in front of the other and quite numb to everything else around you and just surviving. The oncology ward, so we were at Randwick Kids Hospital, is just so awful but really lovely at the same time. They look after children there so beautifully, but 
yeah, as a journalist, I just wanted to know, I wanted to connect with everybody there. You know, I'd sit, I go almost to the same bed most times just by chance. And then I'd see that familiar face, another mum with her son. And I think, where have they come from? And how far have they traveled? And what kind of cancer has this child got? And is he going to be okay? And and you'd sort of silently weave this story into your mind of all the people that you were seeing. You know, there's another family with an adolescent who just the mum was sparky and great and she loved to chat. You know, often um, because Florence was immunocompromised, we were having a lot of unexpected visits to hospital. She would get sick. She would get a temperature. We'd have to go to hospital. There was a required 48 hours on IV antibiotics if that happened. And um, one time we were in Sydney and it was always Florence and I, um, really Damo. That's just what worked with our family. He, he would have done it in a heartbeat. Anyway, it was like being at boarding school again. You're sort of in your rooms and the children go to sleep and then you come out to the kitchen, the common room, and you have to meet these people and try and make conversation. Some people want to, other people don't. Some people are angry. Some people are sad. Some people are just like me, just kind of a bit withdrawn. Anyway, there's this adolescent and I just know that one day, I just think about her all the time. I know that one day they got bad news because they would, the, all the family was there and she was having her chemo administered and they're just reading notes and notes and notes and no one was saying anything. And, you know, you just make up your own stories in your mind as a journalist. I, and I, yeah, I, I just reflect on that a little bit that it's, it's interesting. And I think, I wonder if they wanted to talk about it too, but you just sort of, you, you don't, everybody just got on with, got on with things and, tried to be lighthearted but not too deep and maybe mm-hmm. that's a coping mechanism too because that's certainly what I was like you know I um c- couldn't go deep there's no way because um, mm-hmm. for fear of unbundling it all and just falling in a heap mm. in, in moments of crisis like that I think you know you are putting one foot in front of the other it's all about survival but it's also um it makes every trivial small thing fall to the wayside I mean you've just got one goal and that is for Florence to to be okay and to get through the treatment was that what that was like for you I mean when she did come through the treatment and fantastically amazingly came into remission what was the the sense for you then after that because you're coming from this place of fight or flight or freeze Mm. did you feel like there was a moment where you came out the other end or did you not um so I I love what that just about the clarity when in those disaster times it is everything is so crystal clear your priorities are there is nothing on the periphery all those things that are kind of a bit trivial just fall by the wayside and as I mean, that's you never want to be in that situation, but it, and it is a coping mechanism. But I miss that sometimes because you never want to be in those in that situation of disaster. But the the, the clarity is, and your friends are your your friends are your friends, and there's no one you don't really need to bother about anybody else. And there's um, and family are just there, and you just have one mission. And our lives are so busy now that. Um, yeah, I don't know what I'm trying to say about that, but I definitely agree mm. with you. Mm. Um, so when Flo, we did have a few ups and downs in her treatment. Sometimes it, it worked and it didn't and there were many, like Florence, I reckon she learnt to crawl on the floor of the hospital. We were in and out all the time. Um, I mean, of course she didn't, but it sort of felt like that sometimes. And then, yeah, she got better. Um, the tumour subsided after a different sort of, range of treatments and 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 she just grew up as a girl and was able to go back to daycare and cruise around and yeah and now um you know we don't even have checkups her condition is that it's will always be there they don't know enough about it to be able to sort of say what what will what might happen in the future they can they get concerned that maybe around um, puberty things might flare up again or if there's trauma 
that things might, but they don't know anything about it. So every patient is just learning along with other patients and even the Mm. doctors don't know there's not enough research into it. Um, And now Florence is (laughs) just the biggest little legend she is full of sass. She's so independent. She loves to dance and sing and draw. And yeah, she's just a little gypsy in field. She's, she's wonderful. So isn't medicine just amazing? Mm. You know, that it was a warmer, it was really a blip significant, but it was a blip on our radar and of her life. Mm. For me, um, yeah, I, I, I felt like, yeah, unbeknownst to me, at the end of it was where it got harder. You know, when you're in it, we just kind of one foot in front of the other. And then when things got better, um, I suppose I started processing it more. And um, life just seemed to beat just to get harder. And I was more in my mind and unhappy and wondering why and feeling like I was walking around in a daze, really foggy in the head and and thinking, why can't anybody else see me like this, you know? Why can't anyone else pick up that I'm not um, 100%? I really, um, and so that sort of made me think, oh, you know, nothing is wrong. And then I remember one time I got hold of my doctor in Orange, who I didn't see very often. And she called me on the phone and I pulled over and we spoke for about an hour and a half about everything that was going on and how I was feeling and how it was affecting life. And she said, Sky, look, you're showing symptoms of depression, anxiety, and post-traumatic stress disorder, Mm. which for me was like, oh, oh my goodness. Um, okay. Yes, I am. And, and quite sort of indicating, but also, you know, shared that with, with Damo, but not really anybody else. And it was a while after that, that I decided to, or like took the courage. I found it really scary. I don't know why to be medicated and start on that journey. And yeah, it's still something that sits with me today and that is, comes in waves and ups and downs. And I, it's just whenever I observe somebody else going through difficult times and trauma, I'm really cognizant now that the time it's actually the time afterwards that is Mm. the most difficult. That's what I experienced. Um, And there was no kind of, yeah, no professionals telling me that this will be tricky this time afterwards. You sort of expected that it will um, all get better because Florence mm. is better and mm. um, other family is back together. You know, I've hardly spoken about the boys, but um, they're a huge part of our, they're, they're everything to us too. And, um, yeah, so that just the whole thing took me by surprise. Yeah, I think that would just be so common though. You go from a place of survival to a place of, well, there's no longer this commonality, this priority, this let's get through the treatment. And so you're left kind of bereft with the trauma. I think that that's so, it's so normal, but not talked about. Did you find that people weren't addressing that? Did you find you weren't being asked how you were coping because we're all, you were focused so much on, on Florence? No, people were asking all the time. And when I was, when we were in it, I was fine. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, we all all lost a tremendous amount of weight and we were showing the signs of stress, but we were able to cope. Um, And we were tremendously supported. I've got the deepest friendships and I'm so thankful for them. And they just knew what to do without me even having to say anything during that time. And then, um, so no, people were asking and also I didn't know how to answer it. I, I just didn't, I couldn't, but there was never any kind of super emotional stuff. I didn't know how to broach that, how to, I still don't really, how to get in deep because it is quite deep and yeah, no, but it was just the period afterwards where, um, people sort of, yeah, where they'd leave you alone, which is wonderful to get on with life. And I didn't expect anybody to, um, to, to sort of be looking after me in that sense. But I do remember with my family, I was saying to my sisters one time, I said, didn't you really like, did you know that I 
um, could you pick up that I was a little bit different? And they were like, no. And it just goes to show that it is really all in your mind um, a lot of the time. Well, that's what I have found. Mm. Um, and you just never know what someone's going through. So what in reflection, what do you think we can be doing better after a, a disaster or a crisis? How can we better support each other? I think just the way that I approach it now is just to be um, really supportive during the time, but then also afterwards as well, just know. And also with friends of mine or I just sort of say, oh, I think that afterwards, you know, it will be tough. It'll be really tricky. Um, and just just to make them aware because I wasn't. Mm. And, yeah, I think, I don't know, it's a really hard thing. You just do need to ask the question with meaning. And if you are close enough to be able to push a little bit further, then do it because <laughs> probably that person is busting to talk mm. about it. Mm. but doesn't know how and thinks that maybe there's not the understanding there or they don't, they don't have the words. And so sometimes maybe you could put the words before them. Mm. It's yeah. really nuanced, isn't it? Like, yeah, it's, we're not, no, no one's, we're not professionals in this. We're all learning um, more and more and more about mental health as each year goes on. Mm. Um, and also as I just feel like we all experience so many, so many mini traumas and huge traumas now, like every, absolutely no person is, I feel lucky that I got to, I don't know how old I was age 35 and um, hadn't had any huge significant trauma in our life. And it's certainly um, changed now, but yeah mm, yeah it's it is and I think nobody is going to be um untouched by something massive in their lives so I think probably having the language around how to approach and broach these subjects is it's just really critical and and helpful and so now you are no longer at Grenfell so you um moved to your mother's farm um is that that that's correct isn't it yeah. yeah, yeah. So Florence's story is so big that we've sort of been waylaid into that. But around the same time, we were all as a family blindsided again, especially mum, when um, we lost her partner, who we loved dearly, to a farm accident here where we live now. And Andy... Yeah, he was also just about, he was um, about to start some treatment for cancer. And anyway, and we just, one day he was there and the next day he wasn't. And so at that time, we just all felt like rag dolls in the washing machine being flipped. I, we certainly did it flipped, flopped and wondering if this would ever end. Um, the silver lining to it is that our family moved from Grenfell to here um where we are now at Blakeney Creek little Blakeney Creek near Gunning um and Damien and I and our three kiddos live in a big old house and mum lives 20 meters down the hill never in my life did I think that I would be living in such close proximity to mum and that my children her grandchildren would be able to flip down to her house and annoy her Heaven. So it's it's beautiful it hasn't been without its challenges but um you know at that same time we and Andy is so thatched to this place he loved it here it's a real natural farm and he's everywhere so that's mm. really nice too um but you know, Florence was ill, lost Andy. We needed to move our lives again. Um, there was a lot that had happened, but we're here now. I'm never moving again, hopefully. And um, yeah, life is um, life is great. It's challenging as life is, but um, it, but it's we're on a, a good keel at the minute. And so, when did you start podcasting and working for yourself? Oh my goodness. Okay, so. This is a bit of a long story, but I think it's worth telling because yeah. I think people will resonate with it. After Percy was born, so our second boy, um, I was on maternity leave and I just really distinctly remember feeling a bit of a void. 
And it was, so when I went away to boarding school, it was a small boarding school and we were really, I, I loved all the older girls. I loved all my friends too, but there was lots of role models and people that we could aspire to be like and learn lessons from. And in a weird way, after Percy was born, that was what I was feeling as the void. I think I didn't have, I was a bit rudderless, um, but not, not dramatically so. And I just was seeking that. Anyway, Sophie Hansen, um, who lives in Orange, um, was the AgriFutures Rural Woman of the Year. Maybe it was Rurdick then, I can't remember. I just worked up the courage. Damo was like, just go and ask her. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I worked up the courage to say to her, oh, um, hi, I'm Sky," and I think she knew who I was. If you have anything going on, I'd love to work with you. And on the spot, she said, oh, my God, yes, I've got, I'm doing a podcast. Let's co-host it together. And so... We did that. The podcast was called My Open Kitchen. It was all about Instagram and um, people that we love to follow on Instagram and about sort of building business and telling your story. And it opened up my world again. Honestly, I just was put in contact with all these women in Australia that were fabulous and I didn't know about them. And um, so that's how the journey to podcasting started. And then, you know, I was still working sort of with the ABC moved to Grenfell, resigned finally from the ABC after 11 years and just sort of thought, oh, I think this is my thing. I think this is where I'll be. So I can't go without saying that I, I, I always wanted to work for, for write, to write for Country Style. And so during that time, I through the course of my open kitchen, I was introduced to Victoria Carey, who was the editor at Country Style, who's now our boss at Grazy Her, which is so fabulous. Yeah, I started doing some writing for Country Style, so I was so excited about that. And then it sort of became clear that maybe um, podcasting was more my thing than writing. I still love writing. Um, and, yeah, then a couple of years later, I, um, I'd been working for contracted myself out for lots of clients and doing lots of podcasts for other people, but decided to take the plunge myself um, and started company. It was such a big deal at the time. Company is the name of our main podcast now, which was just interviewing rural women, basically. I, the tag is that ambitious women living in the bush, the cities and all over the world. But I just, you know, I'm curious and I love, I love the fact that if we're interested in some, what somebody else is doing that more often than not, I can say, would you like to be interviewed? And they'll say yes. And I get to spend an hour with that person one-on-one -on -one, yeah. asking them questions about their life in the hope that we can weave a story. Well, we always do. There's always a fabulous story mm -hmm. and that we can show, um, showcase that to others. I just love that. And I think that I hope that company is that. I hope that it's a little platform, a very initial platform for women in um, country areas to sort of spread their story a bit further and hopefully be picked up by other people. Um, and then, Yes, yeah, so it was only this year that I started the Manson Podcasting Network, which is what I'm working on now. I was encouraged by the fact that I sort of had a few successes um, in being shortlisted for a few competitions and grants. And I was like, okay, there are people that believe in this. I'm going to go for it and put out a number of podcasts. And, um, and so that's what... I've done this year um and there's now I think I've got five working on life on the land is included five active podcasts at the moment sort of I've consciously just said I'm going to put the content out there and show what is possible in in um story podcast storytelling by myself and then uh, hopefully one day someone will come along with some money to fund this because it's everyone's favorite question yeah. so how do you make money out of podcasting and it's really hard it's yeah. very difficult and it's business is not my skill set but we will get there eventually mm, absolutely monetizing content it is just like <laughs> the biggest challenge in the world but creating good content not everybody can do it and you're you are one of those people so I think you know, the, it'll just be a matter of timing and the the intersection between who you meet and and um, and how that's going to come about. But 
it, it, like it's very easy to look online and and Instagram and see people doing incredible things and think, my God, I'm never going to be there. Sorry about the scaffolding being loaded outside the front of my house. Um, it's very easy to look on Instagram and think I'm never going to be there. But, you know, you've just recently went to AgriFutures Gala dinner and you heard and met some incredibly accomplished cohort of women who are all passionate. They're all chasing their dreams. They're all ambitious about doing something meaningful in their community. You know, what would you say to those people who look online and on, on the gram and think, oh, I, I'm not going not gonna to get there? I mean, I think it's really easy to have imposter syndrome, but how do you manage that? I feel like that too, often at the moment, because I've just started this new project and I'm trying to build it. And um, it's so, yeah, I've been surprised by um, how much, how many ups and downs there are and how easily you can get disheartened. But I was so lucky to go to the gala dinner last, you know, a few weeks ago. And I'm never not going again. And for this ecosystem in which is like, you know, hopefully there is a lot of people that listen in the cities, but for rural women, that is such a worthwhile thing to go to. And I found that because I've had contact and like you have as well and Grazy heard like so with so many people in the room. So number one to meet them face to face is just exciting and and, and it's a little pat on the back because they know who you are and you you can have a conversation already that, and that's so wonderful, the connection aspect of it. But also I just realised that all the women in that room, um, celebrated, awarded or not, are doing are just sort of doing their best trying their hardest to raise profiles do meaningful projects um, better their communities better their own lives and we're all trying to make much to monetize that basically and we're all actually in the same boat and it's tough it's it's hard work and I took heed from from that as well um, I think, and I also I had been to another award within the space of um, a week of that and the community is so different, so different. It's a beautiful place to be. It's a beautiful place to be where you can just actually spark up a conversation with anybody and they'd be interested in you if they know you or not. And, um, and I think that for me, I was like, yeah, this is awesome. This is to be celebrated. It is an anomaly. Um, it's not like this everywhere and there's so much inspiration in that room and I mean I sound like I'm getting all evangelistic but I'm not but I'm not like I it's yeah there's there's so many people to be inspired by there's so many women to be aspired by you know to to want to um, raise to their levels and then yeah there was just mums and dads in the room too and I think that's a good metaphor for what what women in in business or storytelling or just mums women everywhere are trying to do and that we can be comforted by the fact that we're not alone and it takes something face to face you know an event to actually realize that I I believe yeah not feeling alone I think that's the the biggest thing like everybody's in exactly the same boat we all feel feelings of imposter syndrome and not enoughness but actually everyone's doing their the, the same thing doing their best we've just covered so much ground this morning and I just Sky I've just really enjoyed this so much and I know that um, I've been wrangling for you to come on for a long time and probably bloody sick of me and did it so that I would stop asking (laughs) but I just I think your story is amazing and I've really enjoyed it so thank you so much Thank you, Em, for uh, for badgering me. And um, I mean, I've always really wanted to do it, but it's just been quite a big thing for me. So um, I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you so much. I actually became quite emotional after this episode. My heart absolutely broke for those really challenging months when Florence was so sick. And I'm so grateful for Sky for being so truthful and open about how that experience has shaped her and what that was like. It mustn't have been easy. And I know a lot of our community will have experienced something similar and will hear parts of their stories 
echoed in Skies. There are so many ways that you can hear more from Skye. Sign up for her wonderful weekly newsletter, Company on Sundays, which, as you might have guessed, comes out every Sunday, brimming with recommendations, insights, great podcasts and more. You can find it over at companyonsundays.substack.com. You can also find all of Sky's podcasts, which include Company, Women Behind Wool, Daily Routines and Garden at mansonpodcasting.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Just so much beautiful and inspiring content to be found there. Whilst you're having a scroll online, why don't you quickly jump onto Apple Podcasts and give us a rate and review. It takes a couple of seconds and it really helps us by getting more ears onto our subscriber lists, which in turn helps us continue to offer our pod for free. Thank you so much for being here. And until next time, keep well. Thank you.